Acts 24 is going to pick up where Pastor Eric left off last week with Paul's trial. And reading this chapter, I'm reminded of a guy that all of you are familiar with, the hammer, right? If you've driven anywhere in Indiana, you have seen this guy's billboards everywhere, right? For the on-ramp from my house to get on the Interstate 69, the on-ramp onto the interstate, there are two of his billboards on the same on-ramp. And if you drive to the very next exit, you will see two more. Just traveling one mile on Interstate 69, you will see four of this guy's billboards, all right? And if you travel north in Indiana or into Kentucky, you see them again and again and again. Because this guy markets to Kentucky, Indiana, and Ohio. And if he has this many right here in Evansville, imagine how many billboards he has across those three states. Um, I, I took a trip uh, north to one of our Free Will Baptist uh, gatherings uh, several months back, and I was amazed how many I saw along the way, but also how many I saw of his billboards in the small town that I was in. And just overcome with curiosity, I had no reason to reach out to a personal injury lawyer. I Googled this guy. And I'm like, I've got to figure out what is the deal. I want to know how much money he spent on billboards. Um, and when I Googled him, I saw that someone has taken one of his most like, popular billboards, one he uses a lot. Uh, you may have seen it, and it says, over a billion dollars won for our clients. And someone had photoshopped it to say, over a billion dollars spent on billboards. <laughs> we probably all heard... Um, Heard of this guy, seen his billboards at least. And maybe you don't know anything about him, but you know that he's ruthless. He's the, the hammer, right? And maybe if you were going to court and you were fighting uh, to win some lawsuit or whatever, you'd want a ruthless person. By the way, good chance you wouldn't even ever meet him because he just farms his cases out to people in your location. Um, but I thought of him when I read Acts 24, verse 1. Because Paul is on trial and the Jews, the chief priests, have come down to Caesarea where he's being held for the last five days and they've brought with them a lawyer, an orator. Look at verse 1. Now after five days, Ananias the high priest came down with the elders and a certain orator named Tertullus. And these gave evidence to the governor against Paul. And what's happening here is that Paul has been whisked away from Jerusalem down to Caesarea because there is this threat against his life. There's these people that want to kill him. And so now he's on trial in front of a man named Felix. And Ananias and the chief priest, they hire the hammer of Jerusalem. They hire an order to come along with them and to present their case. And they've done this because they don't have a case. Um, they've brought the big guns. They've hired a silver-tongued lawyer because they don't have a case. Now, previously, we've seen people on trial among the priests, and they're able to bring false witnesses, people who were going to lie. And they're able to make accusations against a person and in some cases kill them themselves or take them to the Romans and have them killed. But this is different because Paul has invoked his Roman citizenship. He is a citizen of the Roman Empire. And while you might just kill a guy who's not a Roman citizen like Jesus or Stephen, you don't just kill a Roman citizen. You have to give him a fair trial. And a lot of the things that we think of that are fair and right, that someone should get an opportunity to plead their case, 
that if someone should have a fair and balanced trial, we think of those things as like that's what everyone should receive. In the Roman Empire, you only got that if you were a Roman citizen. If you weren't a Roman citizen, you were no one. And you could be killed. And Felix, this judge, is like all the other Roman political agents that we come across in scriptures. He doesn't really believe in anything. He's just trying to climb his way up the Roman political ladder. And these Roman political operatives, these governors of these different territories, they were given one job, to keep the Pax Romana, to keep the peace of Rome. Rome didn't want to focus its efforts internally on keeping the peace among its people. They didn't want to squash riots and revolts and insurrection. They wanted to focus on building their empire, developing roads and beautiful buildings, and expanding their borders outward, conquering more and more land. So they would set these governors up, and their one job was to keep the people at peace, keep them doing their job, keep the economy going. Don't cause, don't allow any civil war. And so oftentimes for these guys, the easiest thing for them to do was just kill whoever the crowds didn't like. Why did Pilate kill Jesus? Not because he found any wrongdoing. He says, I can find no wrong in this man. But he kills Jesus to keep the Jews happy. He kills Jesus to keep the chief priests off his back. He kills them to make sure that there are no ways. But Felix is in a hard place because he can't do that to Paul because Paul is a Roman citizen. And also put the chief priests in a bad spot. Because whereas they could just bring false witnesses, if they bring some people now who testify falsely and they're found out, they'll find themselves in trouble with the Roman citizens, with the Roman people, with the Roman government. So Felix finds himself in a real pickle. He's got to actually try this case. He can't just kill the guy to, to make it go away. He's got to hear both sides. And by the way, there's some major corollaries here to the court of public opinion. Like, for those Roman governors, like, all they needed to do was figure out who will be the most angry and then please them. Who's going to be the loudest? What did Pilate do? Pilate heard thousands of people chanting, crying out, or was it less than that? It may have just been a group that the chief priests had gathered together in that moment, crying, crucify him. This is a loud minority seems like they're the ones that are in charge. That happens all the time today. People get canceled because millions of people? No, because a few hundred or a few thousand on Twitter or social media make a lot of noise about something, right? There probably have been plenty of people that have been canceled. They've had their show taken off the air, and we don't even know anything about it because it's not really public opinion. It's who's being loud right now. But Felix couldn't do that in this moment. Because he is a Roman citizen. Paul's a Roman citizen. They've got to actually hear this trial. And Felix knows that no matter what he does here, there are going to be people that are really upset. Have you ever been in one of those situations? Like, it doesn't matter what you do. People are, like, half of the group is going to be upset, right? Like, for some of you, that happened this past week, right? Like, some of you wanted to have, like, a hard set time. Thanksgiving dinner is going to be set at this time. And everybody who is on time and, like, organized wants that, but then there's the rest of your family that like, oh, we'll get there when we get there, right? You have to just like, are we going to please the people who are late? Are we gonna... Felix is stuck in this spot. I've got a, a buddy that I went to college with. He is a 
he was a referee for high school football in the town where he was a youth pastor in Alabama. And I was like, that's crazy, man. No matter what you do, half of people are going to leave that stadium angry with you. That's just, that's, you're just looking to make enemies. Well, Felix finds himself here. And so he listens to the accusations of the prosecution, of the Ananias, or Tertullian, to, to, the, to the Tertullius, the, the lawyer that they've hired. And then he listens to Paul's defense. And so let's look at this case that he hears. Verse 2, and when he was called upon, Tertullius began his accusation saying, Seeing that through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight. We accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. You know what this lawyer is doing? He is laying it on thick, right? He is flattering Felix. He's saying a whole bunch of stuff that isn't true. Did the chief priests love the Roman government? No. Were they super excited that Felix was their governor? No. They couldn't stand this guy. But they're buttering up the judge, trying to convince him to see things from their perspective. And so after he's gone on for three verses about how great Felix is, then he begins his case Verse 5, for we have found this man a plague, a creator of dissension among Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. The case against Paul is threefold. They accuse him, one, of dissension. He's a creator of dissension among all the Jews. And this is exactly the same thing that they've accused Jesus of. This is what they would regularly use to accuse people to the Romans because they knew that that was the thing that the Romans were most worried about. Are we keeping the peace? Is there any dissension? Are people lining up and following through on obeying our orders? Now, Paul hasn't caused any dissension, but they're accusing him of this because they know that that is what will get Felix worried. They accuse him of dissension, they accuse him of heresy. He's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarene. And they accuse him, thirdly, of blasphemy, of profaning the temple. And Paul answers their three accusations. He handles the first two, the first and third, blasphemy and dissension quickly. He says, listen, Felix, I've only been in Jerusalem, got to Jerusalem 12 days ago. And five of those 12 days, I've been here in your custody. So all these things that they're accusing me of have, have, having done in Jerusalem must have happened in the span of one week. Plus, when they found me in the temple, I didn't have a crowd gathered. I wasn't causing a riot. If so, let them provide witnesses. Let them provide proof. And Paul is confident they won't do that because they're not going to provide these false witnesses like they would often do in this court. And so after answering those two outright, Paul then focuses the trial on what it's really all about. This is the exact same thing he did last week in the chapter that Pastor Eric preached to us about. He focuses it off of all of these other things onto what it's really all about. Focuses the trial on the gospel and the resurrection. Now, Paul does this for two reasons. Pragmatically, 
Felix is no judge on the things of theology. So by moving the trial into the realm of theology, Felix has no idea the way to, to judge on this. But more importantly, Paul does this because it's what he always does. He uses every opportunity, every occasion, every conversation to focus it all back on Jesus. To focus it all back on the resurrection, on Jesus dying for our sins. Uh, do you have anyone in your life that they can make anything and everything about their favorite subject? Right? Maybe there's someone in your family that like, you saw them at Thanksgiving and you were like, I know we're going to end up talking about this because we talk about that every time I see them, right? Like, you know, <laughs> Thanksgiving dinner is going to be all about politics, right? Or they're going to bring up their latest workout routine, right? They're just always going to pivot to that. Like, you could say, man, it's really cold out here. And they'll be like, it was really cold this morning when I went for my nine-mile run. <laughs> it was really cold when I headed to the gym today. For Paul, the thing that he brought every conversation back to was the gospel. For Paul, it was Jesus. Everything was about Jesus. And I want you to see that. Look at verses 14 to 16 with me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, and here we have that word the way again. It's how Paul refers to his belief system how Paul refers to the following of Jesus. And why does he refer to it as the way? Well, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. They believe that by following Jesus, it was the way to reunite with the Father. It was the way to heaven. So that's how they referred to their belief system. They would, it would come to be called Christianity, and they would be referred to as Christians by people who were making one of them, but what they used, the term they used was the way. He says, to the way, which they call a sect. So I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. And I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. Paul explains, I believe what they claim to believe. I believe what their sacred writings say. I believe in the God they believe in. I just believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that they're talking about. And here's the distinction. Paul wants it to be clear to Felix. I'm not going off on some different tangent. I'm just following the belief system that they have to its conclusion in Jesus Christ. I haven't gone off on some other path. I've followed this path to its point, to Jesus himself. For Paul, everything filtered through the knowledge of Jesus and notice what he says here, that the resurrection of the just and the unjust. Jesus resurrected, rose from the dead. As Pastor Eric talked to us about last week, that points to the resurrection that is coming one day. And that resurrection will be of the just and the unjust to stand before God. 
And Paul then says, so I strive to live my life without offense before God or men. He says, I live in light of that final judgment. Now think about that. Paul is standing on trial. His life is in danger yet again. But he's not worried about this trial. He's living his life focused on that final trial. He's not worried about how he appears to Felix because what he's worried is how he appears to the Lord. He lives his life in light of eternity, the reality of eternity. For Paul, everything is filtered through the knowledge that he will stand before God one day. So he keeps his conscience clear. He lives in the fear of God. And that makes it much easier for him to disregard the fear of man. He's not worried what everyone else has to say because he's focused on what God will say. That is his centering point. That is what he's focused on. And friend, let me tell you, that should be what drives us. Not what other people think, not what other people might say, but what will God say when we see him one day? As believers, we believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and that points to the fact that we will one day rise again and we will stand before God. Everything in our lives should hinge upon that reality, should be founded upon that truth. It means that we see things that are happening right now in the present very differently. It means that we spend our money very differently, that we invest our time very differently, that we speak to our children very differently because this world is living for today and what people around them think. But Christians, we are living for eternity and what God will say. And when we have that paradigm, it changes everything. Paul lived his life making sure that any opportunity that he had to share the gospel, he would do it. Because one day he would stand before God and everyone else would too. And Paul wanted it to be said of him that there was no one who encountered him who didn't have a chance to respond to the gospel. If anyone who encountered Paul missed out on Jesus and stood before God one day unprepared, it would not be because Paul didn't do his part to share Jesus with them. It would be because they rejected Jesus. Paul constantly lived on mission because Paul was so very clear on his mission. Paul was clear on his mission. His mission wasn't to be liked. And it wasn't to be popular. And by the way, there are many today that they are on a mission to be liked and to be popular by being disliked and unpopular. Like right now, it is really easy to gain a following by being against another group of people, right? Like we could make our church about that. We could make our church about who we are against and things that we are not for. We could become infamous and unpopular so that we become famous and popular. And Paul isn't looking to make people angry. He's not looking to be disliked. He just doesn't care about that. 
What he cares about is what God says. Paul's mission was to proclaim Jesus Christ. And Faith Church, that's our mission. It's our mission. It's not to be liked, disliked, popular, unpopular. Our mission is to tell people about Jesus. Because one day we will stand before God. And so will everyone else in this community. Everyone still asleep here in Chandler. Everyone waking up with a hangover. Everyone feeling shame for the things that they've done over the past week. Everyone waking up feeling self-righteous and headed to church, convinced that they're holier than everyone else. Everyone will stand before God one day. And we must make it our mission that they all have the opportunity to know Jesus. Let's make it our mission that when we stand before God one day, we do so with a conscience that is free of offense. A conscience that knows that we have done everything we can to let everyone we can know about Jesus. Faith Church, we should make it hard to go to hell from Chandler. We should make it hard for people to face God one day without a warning. We should be living and ministering in such a way that everyone in this community only misses Jesus because they've rejected Him, not because they never had an opportunity to welcome Him. We can't make everyone follow Jesus, but we can give everyone an invitation to follow Jesus. Here's what I want you to really see in this chapter. I want you to see Felix's response. Paul gives his defense, and he talks about the gospel. He talks about why he lives the way that he does. Look at verse 22. But when Felix heard these things, having a more accurate knowledge of the way, there's that title again, that term, he adjourned the proceedings and said, when Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will make a decision on your case. He says, first of all, I'll make a decision about the case when the commander comes in so that I can get some more information from him. But here's the thing. There's no record of that commander ever coming in. There's no record of the commander giving any testimony. And Paul's case would stand adjourned for two years without any resolution from Felix. Felix wasn't waiting for Lysias to come in so that he could make a decision. He was stalling. Can you imagine? There are some trials that our nation has like watched closely, right? Been a lot of them. Can you imagine if watching, you know, the prosecution has given their accusation the defense has made their defense the judge sends the jury to contemplate and two years go by and they come back and they say we can't make up our mind that's what happens here two years go by and Felix never renders a decision now look at what happens in verses 24 and 25 because while the the trial is still adjourned Felix brings his wife to hear what Paul has to say. 
Verse 24, And after some days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, someone who has a Jewish background, who knows some of these things that these people are talking about, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now, as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, temperance, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered. He listens to Paul reason and preach about the gospel. He's given a full explanation about the way, about Jesus Christ. Here is Paul the apostle who has seen Jesus in the flesh, who's written the new, much of the New Testament, who's planted all of these churches. If anyone could explain the way of Jesus Christ clearly and in a compelling manner, it's Paul. And when Felix hears this, he trembles and answers, Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. And friends, I want you to see that this is absolutely tragic. Because Felix's decision is to not make a decision. He procrastinates. He waits until the time is right. Now listen. All of us procrastinate, right? Some of us are procrastinating on dealing with our problem of procrastination. Some of us know that we have a problem with procrastination and we intend to deal with it. Maybe tomorrow, maybe next week. Some of you, when you were in school, you heard a project was due on Monday and you thought that means you should do it on Monday. Some of us wait until the last minute to do our work because we know that at that minute we'll be wiser and older than we are now and better able to do that work. But there are different types of procrastination. There's procrastination with a known deadline, like when your taxes are due. And you know, April 15th is tax day. And you can procrastinate all the way up until April 14th. But you know you've got to have it done by April 15th. Or follow that extension, right? But then there are procrastinations without a known deadline. You know you need to change the oil in your car. But there's not a date in the future that you know if you don't have it changed, your engine's going to seize up. Our decision on whether or not to follow Christ is procrastinating on something we don't know when the deadline is. We don't know when our final opportunity to accept Christ is. The passage that Pastor Eric mentioned to us last week from Hebrews chapter 3, when he talked about how it says, quoting the Old Testament, the Spirit says, what it was it that the Spirit says? Hebrews 3, 7 says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear His voice, 
And harden not your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my way, so I swore in my wrath they shall not enter into my rest. And then the writer says, beware, brethren lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you should be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You know what the writer of Hebrews is saying? He's not just saying, listen, we're not guaranteed tomorrow to have the opportunity to follow Jesus, to have the opportunity to believe He's saying we might not have the disposition tomorrow. The Spirit may not be drawing us tomorrow. What Felix says here is I will call you back when I have a convenient moment, when the time is convenient. And the literal phrase is when I am a partaker in time. In other words, I will decide when I have time. How many of us have ever used the phrase, when I have time? I'll get to that, when I have time. When I have the time. Listen to me. You have no time. Time is never in our possession. We do not have tomorrow. We do not have the next moment. We have no possession of any time. People often say there's no time like the present, but what we really should say is there's no time but the present. Because we are not guaranteed the very next moment. And when we procrastinate to respond to the work of the Spirit upon our hearts, when we procrastinate to listen to the call of the Lord, we are playing an incredibly dangerous game because we are not guaranteed another moment. All around us, there are examples of people taken in an instant much earlier, younger than we would have ever expected. You are not guaranteed the remainder of this church service, much less the trip home or the remainder of this week. You have no time. You own no time. And if you have been delaying your decision to follow Christ, do not delay it another moment. I have stood at the, the, the casket of many people who thought they had more time. You have no time. Felix says, I will call for you when I have time. And two years pass by, and he never calls for Paul. In that moment, he heard the explanation of the gospel, and he trembled. But that moment passed. And the next passage tells us that he comes to hope that maybe Paul will give him some money to release him. His heart goes from a place of being tender and open to the Spirit's work upon him to flipping back over to greed. And friend, if the Spirit is 
speaking to you. Do not squander that invitation. You are not guaranteed another. Genesis tells us that the Spirit of God will not always strive with man, for we are but flesh. Any moment that the Spirit calls to you is a moment of grace, and you are not guaranteed or owed another. Jonathan Edwards, in his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, said that to put our trust in our own abilities to get to heaven is like expecting a spider web to catch a rock. I would say that expecting to, the, to have the time to get things right later is like trusting a spider web that doesn't even exist yet to catch a rock. We are trusting in something that we don't even know exists. And so Felix squanders his opportunity. He has the man of God there with him for two years. He hears the gospel the way explained accurately, and he doesn't respond. And he misses out on the time that he did have. Friend, if you are here and you have not responded to the Spirit's work upon your heart, I can guarantee you no time but this moment. Don't miss it. On the flip side, Paul spends two years in Caesarea. And we have no record specifically of any sermons that he preached or books of the Bible that he wrote during this time. But here's what we do know. That for whatever his purpose and whatever his reason, God used this time. God had rescued Paul out of prisons miraculously. Saved his life miraculously numerous times. But God doesn't intervene here and allows him to wait for two years. Why? I don't know. I wish I could say, look at Acts 27 and verse this. This is why. I, I, I don't know. But here's what I do know. Because Paul had placed his faith in Christ and followed him. Whatever his purpose, whatever his reason, God used this time for his good. And when we put our faith in Christ, we have all the time of eternity. And God will use every moment for our good and use every moment for his glory. This past Tuesday at the Thanksgiving service, I shared in my testimony that God's timing is impeccable. That so often we cannot understand what it is that he's up to but through the perspective of years, through the vision of hindsight, we can see what he was doing. And if you've put your faith and trust in God's providence, you can know that whatever this season or the next holds, God does have a purpose in it. Because while we 
have no time. It is all in God's hands. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer.